0: Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Liebman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. <laughs> This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller coming to you today in front of a student audience at Park Rose High School in northeast Portland. We're spending the hour with Mary Beard, the award-winning scholar of ancient Rome. Mary Beard has written more than a dozen books about ancient Rome, including SPQR and Confronting the Classics. She's made it a point to not just focus on history's winners. She often focuses on people who don't wield obvious power. So her latest book might come as a surprise. It's called Emperor of Rome. Despite what the title might suggest, though, it's not a series of biographies of Roman rulers. It's an exploration of what it meant to be an emperor and a demonstration of what we can learn about everyday Roman life and even ourselves through the stories about the office. Mary Baird, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here.
0: Here we are at a high school with people who are preparing to launch into their adult <laughs> lives. I wanna start with your launch just for a minute or two. What set you on the path to becoming a historian?
1: <laughs> can I go back to when I was five? Please. Yeah, um, I, I lived with my parents a long way from London I was five my mum was a village school teacher she thought I ought to go to London to see the capital city and she took me to the British Museum we did fun things but we also did the British Museum and I was dead keen on the ancient Egyptians then and we went to see the mummies and then she took me to the ancient Egyptian everyday life gallery And she was looking around and she said, God, you know, at the back of that case, there's a piece of 3,000-year-old Egyptian cake, right? So I said, God, I really want to see that. I want to see that. But back in the day, uh, museums were not at all child-friendly. I was little. I was five. And this thing was right at the back. So she tried to lift me up so I could see this piece of amazingly preserved 3,000-year-old cake, but it was hopeless. At this point, um, an old guy walks past and says, um, was I trying to see anything in particular? And I said, Yes, yeah, it's that piece of cake at the back, right? And he must have been a curator because he went into his pocket, he got keys out, he opened the case and he brought this cake out and held it, you know, right in front of my nose. And, you know, I never looked back. It was just, you know, it was only a piece of cake. But it was still kind of really exciting that someone not only would have put it right in front of me, but taken the trouble to notice that I wanted to see it. And it made me think about all the things that survive from history that you don't normally think about
0: what's well, what's fascinating about that is it's not a crown it's not <laughs> something majestic and tied to the things that are normally written about in history yeah. it's it's a very everyday object also a sweet thing that that uh, that like a five-year-old or even i would be interested in at this very moment but so what's the connection between that and your career how do you go from that moment to, to becoming a historian
1: well i think i was always interested in the kind of everyday bits of history you know um, you know, emperors are all very well uh, and I've got more and more interested in them as I've got older, but, you know, I was always interested in what people wore, what the enslaved people did, um, what the ordinary folks got up to, you know, how they went to the lavatory, how they dressed, how they washed, um, and what they ate. And... I sort of never really looked back from, being, from that piece of silly old bit of Egyptian cake. I mean, I got more interested in the Romans and the Greeks than I did in the Egyptians. I don't really know why that was, but it was really about what it was like to be there and all the bits of history that we don't usually get told about. Hmm. You know, most people, when you do history, when I did history at high school and at university, you know, we didn't do about what people ate. <laughs> and that's one of the most interesting things. It tells you more about almost anything if you think, what did people eat in the past?
0: Hmm. Let's take a question from the audience. What's your name? Uh, AJ. Go ahead. Uh, I was curious. Who's your favourite author, or what was your favourite book growing up?
1: Oh, that's really hard. (laughs) Um, I I think a lot of people like, you know, who get into being writers like me, I think a lot of them, they've often spent all their time when they were kids with their noses buried in books. And I I have to confess, I didn't really. Um, uh, It's not that I was uninterested in books, but I had other things that I preferred doing. Um, I suppose the kind of things that I remember when I was really little um, were the very childhood stories that I read when I could first read there was an amazing story which still resonates with me and you can see when i give you the title what sort of story it must be it was called the story of the fierce bad rabbit Uh, and this was a story about a a very nasty rabbit who uh, stole a carrot from another rabbit and didn't say please and then he got his tail shot off by a man with a gun. And the story wasn't exactly um, complicated, but it really made an impression on me. It partly made an impression on me, I think, because I really enjoyed being frightened by it. You know, I think that the the kind of stories I've liked ever since have been stories that really, you know, I, I thought gosh, I don't like this very much, and yet I do like it. And there were stories in which bad things happened and challenging things happened, and I didn't feel comfortable. I mean, and I think it kind of set me off on you know, a lifetime of on-and-off reading where I wanted books to make me feel uncomfortable not comfortable, make me wonder about myself. And that started, you know, I think I was about four when I first read this. I could barely kind of bear to read it because I knew that I was going to get his tail blowed off. Um, But it was, um, it was, it kind of, it just made me think books aren't meant to be comfortable. Books are meant to be difficult and challenging.
0: I want to turn to the paradox um, that's, sort of embedded in your book that I I mentioned briefly in my introduction that we can learn something meaningful about everyday life in ancient (laughs) Rome by learning about the the least ordinary people in Rome in the empire how is that possible
1: well you know people have said to me a lot in the last few weeks since this book has been out in the UK you know Mary I thought you were interested in ordinary people in the ancient world And here you've written a book called Emperor of Rome. Have you changed your mind? And the answer is no, I haven't changed my mind. I I am quite interested in what it would have felt like to be Roman emperor. That's true. But what you see through the eyes of the Roman emperor, are some of the most ordinary stories and problems of the ancient world um, that you don't get any other way. I mean, one of my favourite ones is a story that ends up on the desk in the intray of the first proper emperor, Augustus. And it's come from for him to adjudicate from the other side of the Mediterranean, from what's now Turkey, city of Knidos, And in Knidos there were two kind of rival families uh, and they were sort of bashing each other up most evenings. And one evening, one of the families comes to the house of the other to sort of bash the door down and all this. And the people inside the house tell one of their slaves that he should go upstairs and get the contents of a chamber pot and throw it onto the heads of the people underneath in the street.
0: A chamber pot is is like a a toilet pot. Oh, yes, sorry. Before plumbing.
1: Yes, a toilet pot. And basically it was a load of, uh, I won't say, I'm not allowed to say the word, but S and in <laughs> inside it. Uh, so the slave pours this onto the head of the people underneath, but also he drops the pot as well. And the pot then kills one of the guys who's marauding the house outside. And the local authorities say, this is a case of murder, mate. You know, come on, it's a case of murder. And uh, it's looking very bad until the the owners of the slave appealed to the emperor himself hundreds of miles away in Rome and the emperor says, no, it's fine. That was, he looked at the case, that was legitimate self-defense. And they, well, we know about it, because they were so pleased with the emperor's ruling that they inscribed it on a stone and put it up for public display saying the emperor said we were not guilty.
0: Now, it, it brings up so many questions. How was a, a sprawling empire that where it could take upwards of a year to travel from, from one end yes. to the other? How was it set up in such a way that for? I mean, this is this is life or death. This question. So there's there is a, a death. At, that should be adjudicated, I get that. But why is it that the emperor it's, would be roped into this? It is extraordinary.
1: The emperor kind of branded himself. He's a ruler of the Roman world, but that meant he was available to people to bring their problems to, to write begging letters. You know, He was supposed to be the problem solver for ordinary people. And so it's clear that However difficult it is, they're writing to him in their thousands and sending off letters or little kind of you know groups of people to come to represent their case with the emperor himself and so there he is I mean heaven knows how he manages this, and he must have you know he's got an awful lot of staff to help, but what he is doing is he is actually listening or reading the problems of the absolutely ordinary people in the roman world who we mostly don't hear about and then we find that we find the kind of stuff. they either are so pleased if they win that they write it up on stone and say look the emperor came out on our side or from uh, the province of roman egypt you find it written on papyri that's still preserved in the you know in the hot sand basically
0: I see another question from our audience go ahead
1: what do you think is most important for students to know about history I think it's most important to to allow history to make you think differently about yourself I mean I think history is interesting in part because the past is curious the past is kind of interesting and you know I've got a lot out of it but I think the the main thing is that it ought to help us look at ourselves a bit differently. And we ought to think in some ways about what we will look like. It, it helps you think what we will look like when we're history. And it helps you see a different way of looking at the world. Uh, and and I think having a, a different angle on your own problems. I mean, I often think about the Romans. You know, they're brutish... Um, slave-owning imperialists in some ways. And, you know, I don't like them very much. I don't admire them. But I often do stop and think, what would they think is so weird about us, right?
0: What, so, what do you think they would? I mean, setting aside technology, because I mean, that, yeah. that always changes. But what about yeah. what, the way we've set up our society and what it reflects in terms of our values? What, what would they make of
1: it? I think, I think one thing they would find absolutely extraordinary is the prison system. You know, the, the idea that what almost every culture in the world now does, but particularly Western cultures, that you know, their way of punishing people is to lock them up at enormous expense and actually probably fruitlessly right um rome didn't know anything about prisons you know the if you i mean they weren't nice but if you committed a crime you either got fined or exiled or i'm afraid killed or you got a slab but the idea of removing someone's liberty because they'd done something of which we disapprove that would be uh, they just think it completely baffling they'd also think jolly baffling the way we treat old people um you know the idea that what you do with old people is ultimately put them in a lock them away with a lot of other other old people um to uh, spend their final days just in a kind of uh, in a sort of uh world where only the old go you know, and I think, okay, people didn't live quite as long in the ancient world as we do, but, but they would, you know, the, the old people would not get pushed aside.
0: What um, about young people? I, I was struck by how many times you mentioned just, you know, toddlers and little kids at, at the at the emperor's banquet table area. It seems yeah. like it was a very multi-generational affair. It's
1: a, it's a much more multi-generational affair. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that they would also find surprising about us is the way we treat kids, and particularly, you know, very young children. I mean, it, the, the idea that you give children different things to read, you dress them differently, um, you give them toys that are made for children. That, by and large, would be completely incomprehensible. Uh, there were a f- We have found in, in excavations a few things that look like toys, to be fair, and a few things that look like dolls. But basically, kids in the ancient world are just young grown-ups. Now, there are pluses and minuses to that, because um, uh, certainly ordinary kids, not rich ones, but ordinary kids probably went out to work before they were ten, probably you know that there wasn 't a kind of sense that there was education school was only for the rel- school at past the age of ten or so was only for the the relatively rich, but children were just mini adults um, and they had dinner you know the emperor has dinner, and there's children are at the dinner um And it's a a much more generationally mixed world.
0: I want to go back to this question of the size of the empire um, at a time, obviously, without internal combustion engines when you were just uh, using animal power or your own power to to cross from England to the eastern Mediterranean. What did that mean in terms of the challenge of administering an empire?
1: It's absolutely... um, it's mind-boggling. I mean, we we have some letters surviving between the emperor and people who are governing the far-flung provinces. It, it takes three or four months to get a letter from Rome to, let's say, the coast of the modern Black Sea. And you find, you've got these governors writing to the emperor to say, what shall I do about the bath building that's falling down somewhere? And by the time he can get a reply that's probably going to be about eight months later so how that actually works in practice is really really difficult and you know in a sense people don't know what's going on in the empire um really i think
0: huh you also note that uh, which i i found very reassuring early on in the book you say if if, dear reader, you actually can't really distinguish too many Roman emperors, you don't know their names, you don't know too much about their history, don't worry, because chances are people living 2,000 years ago who were ruled by these men, they would have been in the same situation. So, I mean, what was the level of familiarity among everyday Romans or people within the control of Rome To, in terms of but the rulers?
1: Very, very low. I mean, we, we've kind of got the impression, I think, um, largely peddled by historians, modern historians, that, you know, what you need to know about the Roman Empire is who the emperor was, what their name was, when they ruled, all that kind of stuff. There were some people in Rome, there were people who were close to the emperor, had dinner with him, to whom that mattered. Mostly it didn't matter. Um, mostly they probably didn't know the guy's name or, you know, it, it certainly took them some time to find out when one emperor died and the next one came to power. So, you know, it's like, but it's like us in a way. I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe you're much better kind of trained than I am, but I doubt if you could actually reel off all the presidents of the United States, could you?
0: Not not the entire list? No, No. you know, I couldn't. I know the current one, the previous one. And
1: I know the previous one, that's right. Uh, And um, journalists always used to ask me about the previous one. They always just say, which Roman emperor is he most like? Hmm. (laughs) I always took care not to reply but it was too dangerous to reply but um we don't know that i don't know you know if somebody said what's the date of edward the third of england i wouldn't have the foggiest clue uh, most romans were like that they know about emperors but they don't know much about which emperor is which or when they ruled or what they were like
0: we're talking right now with the british historian mary beard in front of an audience at parker's high school in northeast portland Mary Bird's latest book is called *Emperor of Rome*. Let's take another question from audience. What's your name?
1: Uh, Kai. Um, my question is: Do you have a favorite Roman figure from history? I think most Romans were pretty nasty, actually, in our terms. And I, you know, I don't, I don't really. People, people quite often ask that question, or they put it even more sort of, you know, who would you like to have dinner with? And you think, oh, I'm not sure I'd like to have dinner with any of them. Um, I, I've got some that I find more interesting than others. And I think my favourite one is uh, a very little-known emperor from the 3rd century uh, CE, a guy called Elagabalus. And he's interesting because he is the absolute extreme of being a bad emperor. You know, so you probably know the names of one or two bad emperors. You know, Nero is still... Uh, you know it's still a name recognized emperor caligula elagabalus is absolutely off the scale Um, he does things like um, well he invites his friends to dinner and he then showers them with rose petals but he showers them with so many rose petals that they smother and die Right. Or so Um, goes the story. So goes the story. Yes. Sorry. None of this. I'm sure is true. But um, uh, he invents the whoopee cushion. Right. Um, You know, he has a lot of people to dinner and he uh, sits them on inflatable cushions and he has people pull the air out uh, as the dinner goes on. And so they end up on the floor. Uh, and he 's appalling fat shamer he invites people to dinner because they 're very large, and then he laughs when they can 't fit on the same couch i mean it's ab- you know, he is absolutely ghastly in every possible respect you 're right to say probably none of this is true, but it sort of makes you see what Romans were afraid of in emperors, how they, it's a bit like modern celebrity gossip. We know it's not true, but it tells us quite a lot about how we think about these people. Mm.
0: You mentioned um, that everyday Romans, uh, it would take a while for them to figure out who the, the new emperor was, if they ever would really pay attention to that. Let's turn to the question of succession. You have a whole chapter about it, and it's fascinating, because unlike a lot of cultures throughout history where if there were a one person rule or one man rule, it was not uncommon for the, the first child or the first son to take over. That's not the way it works no. in Rome. So, so what would happen yeah. in general when yeah. an emperor died? When an emperor died, they fought it out.
1: Now, um, in the UK, uh, we, have a, we have no doubt when Queen Elizabeth recently died her eldest son took over and we knew that was going to be the case for the last 70 years you know ever since this kid was born that he was going to be the next now rome doesn't have a system like that Um, and it is helpful if you want to be the next emperor it's helpful to be the son of the previous one but it doesn't it doesn't solve it. It doesn't, it doesn't give you an automatic right. Now, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages in both systems. In the kind of UK, European, monarchical system, um, there's no question about who's going to succeed. And everything's very straightforward. But it means you have to put up with someone who's completely hopeless if they happen to be the firstborn.
0: And and over time, a kind of inbred world of royalty. Yeah, that's right.
1: What you find in Rome is that you don't have to put up with someone who's hopeless, but all the time, people from long before the emperor is dying... Uh, you know, even before he looks faintly sick, they are jockeying for position to be the person who's going to be named to be the heir. So it makes the court and the people around the emperor constantly rivalrous, constantly trying to get one up on the other people who might be their rivals.
0: Uh, And and often killing them out of fear.
1: sometimes it is said killing them. (laughs)
0: You know? <laughs> Sometimes, so you, but I mean, it, it did happen.
1: Yeah, but look. Uh, Rome wasn't a nice place and the way of solving your problems in Rome, apart from writing to the emperor, um, was a pretty brutal way. You know, you killed, you killed your way out of your problems. It's mm. frightening, really frightening kind of society. But people would try to make sure that their, their rivals to the throne were sidelined somehow. And sometimes that sidelining was a pretty brutal form of sidelining. Mm
0: often the the way emperors would would try to get around this or choose their own successor um, was through adoption yeah. it was an unbelievably common yeah. uh and, and also geographically far away mm. process yeah. um emperors came from italy but also yeah. what we now call italy but also from spain from north africa yeah. from syria yeah what did it mean to be Roman and what did it mean to be a foreigner?
1: I think that's the big
0: question. Uh, And I
1: think it's one of the things that makes Rome interesting because like when you see the movies about ancient Rome, you know, by and large, um, the Roman emperors are, you know, posh white men in togas, really. Now that, there were some of those, but one of the things that's quite extraordinary about Rome as an Empire, compared with other similar early empires, is that it is constantly incorporating people from the conquered territories. Um, They become citizens, they're brought into the show, and they become leading figures, so that you have, you know, by the end of the second century CE, you've got a Roman Emperor whose home is Africa. And a little bit later, you've got a Roman emperor whose home is Syria. And so it isn't that very narrow, um, ethnic, very limited ethnic group who are making the, uh, uh, forming the the ruling class. It's much, much wider than that.
0: Much wider than that. Yeah. Yeah. Much wider. Um, So, I mean, how would Romans read what we now call race? They would be very, very puzzled. I mean, I think that
1: the there is a big debate about exactly how far Romans had any real racist sense. But everybody would agree that nothing like uh, the modern world. Uh, whether there's a whether you can spot it a little bit is is a big question. But I think that you can see that, I think, very clearly in um, the institution of Roman slavery. Because you say to a, a Roman, uh, close your eyes and think of an enslaved person, they would probably see a red-haired German. right? They, do, they don't see an ethnic difference uh, in the enslaved versus the freeborn citizens. And that's why, another reason, I think, why they're a, a, an, interesting, a, an interesting culture to study, because they're exploitative, they're hierarchical, they're cruel, but that, that kind of hierarchy and that kind of exploitation goes across different boundaries from ours and is formed differently.
0: How much was the institution of slavery embedded in the, the, the Roman Empire? Can you give us a sense of the, the extent of it?
1: It's very hard to know the number, but Rome is one of the very few uh, basically slave societies, which is to say that Rome could not function Its it's functioning of its government, its economic activities, its agriculture and its trade was absolutely founded founded on non-free labour. And there have been very few societies where that has been the case. Slavery in the ancient world was went right through any society you could find that there were always people who had lost in some way their freedom. But Rome and other cities in ancient Greece were unusual in that the whole institutional makeup of the state was based on slavery. It's different from Atlantic slavery in the way that we've become familiar with it. Um, And certainly the It is, I think, initially puzzling to to see that um, occupations that we tend to think of as fairly high-status occupations uh, are often filled by the enslaved, so medicine would be one. Um, It's also the case that um, slavery in the ancient world is a is a feature of war. You know what happens to you if you are on the losing side of a war. If
0: you're a prisoner it, of war, eh? it
1: is enslavement, and that happens to Romans. You know, Romans when they lose, and they sometimes do lose, then those Romans get enslaved in Parthia or wherever it was. So it's you cannot look at Roman culture without thinking about slavery, but it is a very different vision of slavery. And there's a very nice, wry, and in some ways quite chilling comment that one Roman suggests at a certain point that uh, slaves should be made to wear a uniform. Because otherwise you go into the center of town and you don't know, you can't recognize who is slave and who's free. That suggestion is rejected on the grounds that if slaves wore uniform, they would know how many of them there were, hmm. right? So.
0: We have to take a quick break. We have a lot more about ancient Rome, about the stories that we can hear about the despots of ancient Rome, what they can teach us about the people who were ruled and what they can teach us about ourselves as well. We'll be back after a short break. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're coming to you today from Park Rose High School in Northeast Portland. We're talking with the English historian, Mary Beard, who has focused throughout her career on ancient Rome. Her latest book is called Emperor of Rome. She argues that the stories we tell about Roman emperors says as much about us as they do about the emperors themselves. Let's take another question from our audience. Go ahead.
1: Um, how do you deal with self-doubt and writer's block? How to deal with self-doubt.
0: And writer's block.
1: And the writer's block. Uh, with very great difficulty. You know, I, I think that... Uh, well, let me give you, an, uh, you know, one answer, which uh, I've just come across recently. I recently left my job in the university and I cleared out my room and I'd lived in uh, an office I'd had for decades. And I was clearing out all the papers. And I came across at least the start of three books I'd started to write and never finished there was the, the typescript what I'd written I'd got a chapter or two in and then I, I, I now have, I blocked it out actually I can't remember why I never finished them but I looked at them and I thought they're not bad actually this is quite good but at a certain point I clearly just couldn't do it just couldn't do it I I think that there's one thing that I've learned and I used to, I used to find it extremely hard to write. Uh, and I think I found it hard to write because I was always pretending to be a writer. I wasn't being me. Hmm. You know, I was always thinking, Oh, this is how you have to start. This is what you should do. And that's probably why I didn't finish these three books, you know, because I was, sort of, I was sort of pretending to do it. I was acting. And I think that the, the thing that really made a difference to me, and I don't know how it happened, was when I thought, I'm going to say what I want to say. And when I thought, I'm going to say what I want to say, it isn't always plain sailing after that. You still get you know you still get times when you get tied up but you don't actually get that sort of awful sense you just can't do it and it's for me it's that's been about writing but it's also been about speaking and you know now i probably speak what some people would think of well, as too much um, but when i was a young lecturer at university I'd go to seminars and I would never dare open my mouth you know I had things I wanted to say but I just I could never get it in I could never you know there was never a time when I could say excuse me I think I've got a point I'd like to and I I felt terribly frustrated because I think there's nothing worse than having things to say but not but finding you can't you can't get your point across and again that when that changed was when I decided I would just say these points my way I wouldn't I wouldn't be the kind of I wouldn't pretend to be an academic and speak all pompous I'd just say that doesn't make any bloody sense to me right and then when I started to speak as me I found that I could do it but up to that point I just found I was pretending to pretending to be someone that I wasn't and I think that you know, I, I don't know how far this goes for men. I think it probably does up to a point. But I think a lot of women find it very hard because they, they're they trying to speak the language often of a, a kind of male hierarchy. And it comes out, so you hear yourself speak, and you think, who's that? You know, that isn't what I'm thinking inside. And I wish I knew how I'd made that transition between between kind of pretending I was someone I wasn't and then being me. But it's really, really helped. And, uh, you know, maybe everybody has to find their own way to do that. I mean, I I think of it now looking at myself on television. um, uh, And I've made quite a few programmes, And some of them are good and some of them aren't so good, I think. Uh, But when I watch them... What I find quite reassuring is even when they're bad, as they sometimes are. Um, let's be honest, you know. Um, I watch them, and I think I recognise myself, and I think that the that is absolutely key. Like now, I'm I, I'm hearing myself in my ears, and I sound like me. I might not be speaking sensibly, you know. It might be, you know, I, I might be getting the wrong end of the stick, but I feel as if I'm speaking like me. And I think that is, I think for women especially, that is really, really important. Hmm.
0: It's, you know, maybe this is hard because as you've just said, you, you wish you could pinpoint how this happened, but I'm wondering if, if you could sort of imagine reverse engineering it and, and if you can imagine what it um, would have taken to, to arrive where you have arrived earlier the the kinds of societal changes that would that would that would would have given you the confidence to to be yourself earlier
1: i don't i don't know the answer to that i i mean i actually i feel quite grateful that um you know nobody had heard of me till i was about 55 you know um i was Teaching in university, I was having children. I was being reasonably successful within a job uh, and you know, and as I just said i was I was beginning to find a way of speaking in a way that I thought sounded like me i was you know I kind of knew what it was to be authentic um, uh, and i didn 't do any real public stuff, um, like being on telly till I was in my mid fifties and to some extent. I feel quite, you know, I shouldn't say this to an audience of young people. I should say, go out and grab the opportunities while you can. I felt that by the time I got to have any kind of public role, I was, I I didn't mind so much. I didn't care. Uh, And that was, it was quite, it's quite nice not caring.
0: Hmm. You mean the the freedom of not worrying what people were going to think?
1: Yeah. You know, when I did a a, a tele programme, Um, wasn't the actual first one I did, but I think it was the second. Um, It was reviewed by one television critic in the newspapers in England saying, um, you know, Mary Beard is just awful. She looks like the back end of the bus. If she's going to come into our sitting rooms, she might at least make an effort to brush her hair. You know, her teeth are rabbit teeth. You know, it went went on and on and on like this. Uh, And it became a bit of a a kind of... uh, Controversy in the UK because it was just coming at a moment when older women were going on on fronting television programmes much more. Um, but I think that if that had happened to me when I was 30, I know I I would have been absolutely crushed by it. Mm. You know, and I think that you do build up a bit of resilience, um, which helps. So as I say, I, you know, I, I don't. What I don't want to do is put off young people, and I don't mean to ignore the guys, but particularly I don't want to put off young women um, from from actually thinking that you you know you should go out, go out and get it now. But also, don't worry too much that you're missing the chance. You know, people often they look at me now, and people when I talk at high schools in the UK, they assume that I've you know I've been sort of successful forever. Well, I haven't been and you know sometimes you know you wait a bit and so you shouldn't get put off if things don't work out to start with it didn't really work out for me you know and I looked at these um, these unfinished books and I thought you know I have I, I whited them out of my mind but I would um, they must have been dreadful when I decided I couldn't go on
0: hmm.
1: so you know you you always get a second chance you really do
0: I want to take some of these themes actually back to ancient Rome. What were the official limits on women's power <laughs> in ancient Rome? And what, was, what were the ways that women did wield power despite those official limits?
1: Um, they have no political
0: rights. They cannot
1: vote. Um, Uh, They have some economic rights and legal rights that they can inherit property. In fact, women in Rome were better off than women in the United Kingdom up until the end of the 19th century. But still, they had no public role. The idea that a woman should have a public face was really, really difficult. Hmm. Now, what happens when you get to the period of these one-man rulers is that women do become a bit more powerful. They come a bit more powerful because they're close to the man in power. You know, If you have a single ruler or a president or a prime minister, the people who are close to him, they, they wield power a bit because they can bend the ear of the man in power. And that certainly happens in Rome. But I think that there, we have an image of women in the Roman imperial court as being schemers and wheelers and dealers and women who've got a political agenda that they're trying to um, to bring about. that whispering they're
0: Whispering into the ear. They're whispering into the
1: ear emperor. and they're doing worse. They're poisoning people, you know, in order to bring about, for example, the succession of their own son. Now, that may or may not be true, but I do think that they're It it also falls into the pattern that we still see of, you know, if you want to know why things are going wrong, um, blame the woman, right? And at the moment in um, the UK, we're having an inquiry about how the government uh, handled COVID. And one of the issues is whether the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, did it properly. And a lot of people think that that's not the case. What you find, even in this official inquiry, you find people blaming Johnson's wife for the reason that he made certain decisions that were bad. And you think, you know, blaming the wife goes back to, well, it goes back to Eve, doesn't it? But it goes back to certainly the Roman period, certainly um, before yeah. And, you know, women have always been blamed for when men get things wrong, I think is
0: um,
1: a basic lesson that the Romans teaches uh, and modern culture.
0: Let's take another question from our audience. Go ahead.
1: When you're looking at the history of like different places or like a new place, what's the first thing that catches your interest or you start investigating? I do look for what happens about women and gender. And you know? I think if I'm, I'm always on the lookout for... Um uh, who are the people we don 't see right? do we see the women here? do we see the poor? do we see the ordinary? do we see the enslaved and I think it's often in history it 's quite interesting to say um, always ask yourself what what you 're not being told right you know who who are we not seeing and can we actually get any idea of what their perspective on that period of history would have been? So I always try and be a bit sort of countercultural. Um, always try to say, what would it be like to see this from the slave's point of view, or the woman's point of view, um, you know, or the or the the person who's destitute and sleeping under a bridge in ancient Rome, and it's in some ways that's always frustrating because very often you don't get enough material and you you always want more but very often there's a lot more there to tell you about them than people have ever admitted or wanted to see that's why i think you know in writing this book on the uh, emperor of rome um I think that, I I hope people will feel surprised that you can tell the story of, a little bit of the story of, Um, the woman, the enslaved woman who was the masseuse of the Empress Livia or the the poor bureaucrat, low-level bureaucrat in the Roman province of Egypt who's trying to get things done and is sending what we would call email after email and is being a really frustrated administrator. People we don't usually see but actually look for what you don't see and you'll find it or you'll find a bit of it would be my, my motto there.
0: You have a uh, sentence near the end of the book that really surprised me. You wrote this, working on the Roman Empire for so long, I've come increasingly to detest autocracy as a political system, but to be more sympathetic, not just to its victims, but to all those caught up in it from bottom to top. It's a top that, that I found yeah. most intriguing. What is the sympathy you've begun to feel, say, for an, an emperor. emperor or a senator? I can do the emperor easier than the senator, probably. I think senators probably had a better
1: time than the hmm. emperors. I think it would be very unfashionable to say, do you know, I feel really sorry for Roman emperors. You know, that's not exactly a fashionable line. But I started to look at these guys, and they're kind of ordinary, ordinary human beings who have to pretend that they're running the whole of the Roman world. You know, and they're not really, but they've got to pretend. And they're living in a court where they know that no one is telling them the truth. You know, people talk about uh, the Roman imperial upper crust. Uh, they talk about it as being a society of flattery. You know, that, that's, what, that's what happens to the emperors. They get flattered. And we kind of tend to think, God, how awful it is to, um, to always have to flatter this bloke. Well, we should also turn the tables on that a bit, I think, and say, what would it be like always to be flattered?
0: And to never then, to to just have an uh, innate distrust, that if anyone says anything good about you, you you probably are not going to believe that they actually believe that. You can't trust, the emperor, nobody can trust
1: the emperor, but the emperor can't trust anyone else. Hmm. So as soon as you get that kind of disjunction of power and you get this autocracy, that's, I suppose, what I mean. I I, I felt increasing sympathy for all those people, all the individuals, those who had to say, yes, sir, you're absolutely brilliant, but also for this guy who's trying to believe that he's the top dog, has to behave like it, Uh, and nobody will trust him nobody He cannot trust anybody and to some extent that makes you a bit sympathetic to men to men and women but mostly men in power now Hmm. that you know does the you know i don't know does the american president ever have somebody telling him the truth
0: Hmm. well one of your most overarching projects um is to show that even just in this, if, if even if the stories that we tell about our rulers aren't true, if they are, as you say, imbued with fantasy, gossip, slander, and urban myth, that they can still tell us things that are true. Are you arguing that that, that that's more? the case with autocracies or is it we, that there's there's always a meaningful subtext even in in the lies we tell ourselves.
1: Yeah, I think I think lies are really important in history. Hmm. Lies and half-truths and exaggerations are as important as what literally happened. Why? Because they often expose the things that we are scared about, the things that we are curious about, and they expose our preoccupations. I mentioned a bit ago um, this little boy emperor Elagabalus showering rose petals on his guests so many that they smothered and were killed. That's partly a story about what, what a kid gets up to if he's ruler of the world. But there's a bigger point to it, I think, and it's saying why are we scared of emperors? Well, we're scared of emperors because even when they are at their most generous, they might kill us, you know? The generosity of people in power can be fatal, right? And I think that if we were to write a history of the 21st century, and we wanted to know about what we thought about our world, what, what preoccupations and prejudices we had, I think looking at gossip about celebrities or Harry and Meghan would tell us an awful lot, even if it's not true
0: we have about a minute left, but what happens in a society where truth is so warped or destabilized?
1: That's it. And uh, what is it like to live in a world or to live in a court culture where you can never believe your eyes? Uh, You can never know what is true. And I think in some ways, that is what is scary about autocracy. And maybe we have to keep a bit of a watch out or whether it might not be scary about what we're living through too.
0: Mary Beard, thank you very much. Thank you. Mary Beard is the author of Emperor of Rome. Thanks so much to Anne Winokur, the librarian here, and to Olivia Jones Hall, Literary Arts, for making these shows at Portland Area High Schools possible. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on NPR's app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva. The Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust. Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.